You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. Hi, Nan. Hi, Steve. I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about today. Well, as we all know, this month is February. And what happens in February? Valentine's Day? Yes, 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 yes. And anyone who's ever seen the great movie The Women will remember Mary Boland saying, L'amour, l'amour. But of course, she was on a train to Reno to get a divorce. But love is a subject today, and we're actually going to talk about some romantic movies for Valentine's Day. Movies you can check out to get you in the mood. So Nan and I, as we always like to do on a good holiday, we've curated some great movies for you to check out. Hopefully, there's some that you may not know, some you may know, but they're guaranteed to tickle your heart and put you in a romantic space. So get those bonbons out <laughs> and and maybe a, maybe a little cocktail or something. I don't In, know. Indeed. Yeah. The first movie that I chose for Valentine's Day and it's it's a good one. It's called Till We Meet Again oh. from 1940. It was a Warner Brothers movie that was directed by Edmund Goulding. And Goulding was best known for like Grand Hotel in 1932, Dark Victory with Betty right. Davis in 1939. Wow. Good pedigree. Yeah, The Great Lie in 1941, which Mary Astor won her Oscar for. But this is a perfect movie for him because he was really great directing romance movies and he was very good with female actresses. Okay. Well, it's based on a 1932 movie called One Way Passage, which starred Kay Francis and William Powell. And it was uh, based on a story by Robert Lord. Okay. Till We Meet Again is a romantic tale of a shipboard affair between two ill-fated passengers. Oh, wow. And, of course, the beautiful, talented Meryl Oberon plays Mm. Joan Ames. And she's this wealthy woman who, come to find out, is dying of a heart condition. No. (laughs) Tragic already. Well, she decides to keep this a little secret, and she's going to go out and live her life with gusto and passion. Yes. So... 
she decides to take an ocean liner cruise. Well, while she's in Hong Kong waiting to get on the boat, she meets the dashing and handsome Dan Hardest, played by George Brent, mm. in a Hong Kong bar. <laughs> well, what happens in a Hong Kong bar when you've met this tall, dashing, handsome guy? You fall in love, like, immediately. Of course. And of that's course. what happens. Well, and she doesn't have much time, right? Exactly. <laughs> so the clock gonna, is ticking. The so. clock is ticking. Yeah. Well, Dan has a secret of his own. Come to find out, tall, good-looking, handsome, dashing Dan yes. is actually wanted for murder back in the United States <gasps> and is headed for a death sentence. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, did he did he really do it? Well, yes, I think he did. Okay, okay, okay. This is, this but he's is... very dashing and he's okay. very charming. This is quite a premise. Well, so they have this great moment in this bar. They truly have fallen in love in like 10 minutes. <laughs> That's what happened in those 40s romance movies. So as soon as Dan leaves the bar, he has a sweet parting with her. He walks out and he's immediately handcuffed. <laughs> oh, my gosh. By Lieutenant Steve Burke, who's played by that great, great character actor, Pat O'Brien. Oh, Which yeah. I think we know from yes. a million movies. Well, Steve Burke has been on his trail for a year and finally has nabbed him. Steve Burke is going to take him back to America so we can face the execution. And guess what? He gets on the same ocean he liner. He gets on the same ocean liner. Okay. But is he able to keep from Merle that he's... A well... Mer is that what you're not going to well, tell us? I will. I will tell you this much. Actually, as he's getting on the boat with Steve Burke, mm -hmm. um, he decides to make a, a dash for it. So he dives overboard, but he's handcuffed to Steve Burke. Okay. In the water, there's a struggle. He manages to get the key to the handcuff. He frees himself. He's swimming to safety. And then he realizes that Steve Burke can't swim. <gasps> so he may be a murderer, but he does the right thing. And he goes back and he, he saves, saves Steve's life. Well, Steve is grateful. They get on the boat. And Steve allows him to kind of roam the boat freely as sort of a last moment of freedom okay. and not be handcuffed while he's on the boat, which is very convenient because, of course, then he, he can... meets Joan again. Right. Well, before he meets Joan, Dan is in a bar on the boat and he meets an old crony of his. He's this con artist named, it's a great name, Rocky Rockingham, <laughs> which is played by the, that wonderful, another great character actor, Frank McHugh. Okay. Yeah. And the, the cool thing about Frank McHugh is he played the same role in the 1932 version, One Way Passage. Oh, really? So he's sort of reprising the role. So Dan asks Rocky to kind of help him get out of this predicament. And so as they're discussing it, Joan comes into the bar. She sees Dan. The romance is on. I mean, it is on. But she has no idea that he's under arrest. And he has, he has no, no idea. idea. She's dying. She's dying. The rest of the cast is top notch. There's the scene-stealing Benny Barnes. There's also Geraldine Fitzgerald, who, of course, always played the perfect best friend. And then there's George Reeves, who, of course, went on to be TV Superman. He basically comes down to the choice. Does he escape and leave Joan, or does he stay with Joan, whom he has already found out is dying through the ship's doctor? So he knows okay. there's this moral dilemma of, do I go to my freedom? Do I go to my true love? As short-lived as it may be. Right. And that's the dilemma. So I'm not going to give away the ending, but it's the 
perfect movie for Valentine's Day. All right. It's on my list. I can't Yo, you, wait. You'll love it. You have to tell me after you watch it. Okay. I will. I will. All right. My film involves a person that we have talked about just recently in one of our episodes. Oh. Clooney Brown yes. from 1946. Boy, this is such a charming film. And it's definitely on the lighter fare of my list. Um, and, and perhaps even the one that you no, just described. No dying wealthy women. No dying no wealthy women. Convicts. No Oh, no. Now, this is directed by Ernst Lubitsch, uh, written by Samuel Hoffenstein and Elizabeth Reinhardt. But what's interesting, it was based on the book by Marjorie Sharp, oh. whose best-known work is the Rescuer series about the mouse, about oh, Miss Bianca and her yes. partner, and it was adapted by Disney oh, in 1971. Right, right. So she wrote the oh. book that this film is based on. I, I thought that no was really idea. interesting. Wow. So the film stars, as you know, <laughs> Jennifer Jones, yes. who plays Clooney Brown, who is a <laughs> wannabe plumber. Now, you heard that Just, right. You, you won me right there. <laughs> I know. I mean... I don't know of another film that features the female lead as a plumber. As a plumber. So just for that reason alone, I think this film is worth watching. Yes. She plays the orphaned niece of a plumber, and she finds the work fascinating. And she's just, Jennifer Jones is absolutely yes. delightful in this. She is. Um, she almost made me interested in being a plumber. I mean, she really. Well, that's good acting. Yeah. She is a free spirit. She arrives at the apartment of a gentleman named Mr. Ames, who is played by oh. Reginald. Old Gardner. So great. Could have been on our character list. Oh, he actor so could have episode. been on our character yeah. list. So Clooney is there to unclog his sink. <laughs> he is having a party and his sink is clogged. <laughs> and it's pretty gross. So he's desperate. And she comes in and fix it. She does. She also meets this celebrated anti-Nazi Czech refugee. Mr. Belinsky, who was played by the continually becoming more yummy to me, Charles Boyer. Oh, so suave. He's so suave. So she fixes the drain. They decide to celebrate before the party starts with a couple of martinis. And Clooney, I don't think, has ever had one before. And she quickly <laughs> becomes passed out. Her uncle arrives to find her there. And he is not pleased at all. She should not be there. She needs to learn her place in society. And that's one of the themes in this film is hierarchy and where your place yes, is. Yes, the um, societal food chain. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So her uncle decides to send her to the country to give her a lesson and work for a wealthy family. Whereas luck would have it when she ends up going there, who ends up being a guest of the Carmel family, which is who she is working for? I'm guessing Charles Boyer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, the Carmel family is quite a cast of characters. Sir Henry is played by Reginald Owen, who I always think of as Scrooge. I know Scrooge, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but he's quite young when he did he Scrooge. Was. I didn't realize that. Younger than we probably realized. Yes, yes. Lady Alice is played by Margaret Bannerman. Their son, Andrew, is played by Peter Lawford. And he has a love interest <laughs> who was also at the cocktail party. And her name is Betty Cream. One of the best names ever, it's Betty Cream. It's an interesting name. <laughs> and she is played by none other than Helen Walker. Yay, we love our Helen. Oh, boy. And she's she's lovely in it. She's really good in that movie. She really yeah. is. She really is. The servants to the Carmel family are just, I mean... <laughs> 
some of the most interesting character actors, Sarah Allgood and Ernest Cosart. If you want a masterclass in underplayed, yes. fast servant banter, I mean, they they nail it. And but, I love how obsequious he is to her. Yes. The, the butler's so obsequious to the, to the is she the headmistress or whatever yes, she is? Yes, yes, like the head That's the head just of a household. funny dynamic, I think, between the two of them. Well, and the hierarchy also falls in line yes. at that level. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be in your place. And uh, poor with, Clooney is like rock bottom. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's definitely rock bottom. The film is chock full of other favorites, including Cersei Aubrey Smith, Richard Hayden, oh. who is Max Detweiler yes. Yes. in The Sound of Music, who is hilarious. He's so annoying. Oh my gosh, he's so annoying. And his voice, he has this whole fabulous voice that he has. Yes. Um, he's this officious chemist who's vying for Clooney Brown's attention. And it's probably the worst potential date ever. Oh yeah, oh yeah, so boring. And... Una O'Connor plays his mother, who steals every scene she's in, and she doesn't say a word. Doesn't say a word? Yeah. Richard Hayden is no match for Charles Boyer, who has fallen in love with Clooney. Now, there are a number of wonderful scenes between Boyer and Jennifer Jones, including one with some very funny double entendre about plumbing. <laughs> That the servants overhear and think it means yes. something entirely different. Yes. As he's coming out of her bedroom late at As night, As he's too. coming out of her bedroom late at night. Yeah, it's that is hysterical. It's the last film that Lubish directed before his death. He started directing a film the following year, but passed away before it was completed. And it really has all the hallmarks of his previous films and what we think of him. The sophistication, the humor, that repartee. That and great dialogue. Yes. Great dialogue. Yeah. And deeper things themes. You know, yes. it's a very light, fluffy movie, but the themes of hierarchy, as we said, and anti-Nazism, which, yeah. you know, is still uh, something we need to apparently learn today. <laughs> apparently. Um, so this is a delightful one. Oh, and one more thing. This is the film that created the catchphrase, squirrel to the nuts. <laughs> so if you want a light, funny, delightful film, Clooney Brown is the one for your Valentine's Squirrels Day. Squirrels to the nuts. <laughs> Squirrels to the nuts. Your turn. All right. So my next Valentine's movie, and oh, do I love this movie. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it, go see it immediately. It's The Clock, 1945, which was an MGM movie that starred, of course, Judy Garland. She was fresh off of the success of Meet Me in St. Louis. She came off that film kind of exhausted. So MGM chief Louis B. Mayer decided that he was not going to place her in another musical, he was going to give her a romantic drama instead. Okay. So he... Because oh, those are so easy. Because those are so easy. <laughs> and, and, and when you see this movie, you'll think, how was that easier? Yeah. So he ended up casting her in The Clock. Fred Zinneman was originally brought on to direct, okay. but he and Garland did not click. Really? For some reason, Zinneman was very laid back, and Judy was very needy and needed lots of attention, okay. lots of direction, and it just was not a match. So okay. Zinneman left the production, and Garland asked Louis B. Mayer, can Vincent Minnelli come on board, who had just directed her in Meet Me in St. Louis, and she was starting a romantic relationship with. Right. So Mayer said yes, Minnelli jumped on board, and thus began the clock. Well, the Clock is this incredibly romantic drama about a small-town guy from Indiana named Joe. <laughs> I love that. And he's played by the wonderful Robert Walker. Well, Joe is in the military, and he's on a 48-hour leave in Manhattan. And he's a total fish out of water. He's never been to Manhattan before. 
So while he's in Penn Station, he accidentally trips a secretary named Alice, played by Judy Garland, of course, and breaks the heel of her shoe. Okay. Talk about a meet-cute yeah, moment. Yeah, that's a, definitely a meet-cute. <laughs> well, after he ends up getting this repair shop owner to open and repair her shoe, because it's a Sunday and he's closed, Alice decides to show him around Manhattan since he's never seen it. So they take this open-air bus tour. They go and see the zoo, the Met. It's really fun to see them seeing the city. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about seeing the city, because the city is such a big part of the movie, none of it was filmed in New York. (laughs) It was all done on sound stages. They use stock footage. They use projections. They use all the tricks of the trade. And you will swear to God you're in New York. Oh, that's very cool, especially for that time period. Yeah, which was pretty innovative. So as they finish their day, Joe asks if Alice will have dinner with him that night. Well, Alice is a little skeptical, but she's a little smitten. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she agrees. And they decide to meet under the big clock at the Astor Hotel at 7 o'clock. Well, she almost doesn't go because she's got this chatty, annoying roommate who convinces her that the only thing soldiers want is, mm-hmm. you know, what? <laughs> but you know what? She followed her gut and she goes ahead and she meets him. They have a lovely dinner. They get to know each other. You know, they're, they're attracted to each other. It's going Sparks well. Sparks are flying. Sparks are flying. Well, they take this really nice late night walk in Central Park. Um, But they actually missed their bus home because they stayed so late. So they're forced, and this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, they're forced to hitchhike with this milkman (laughs) named Al Henry. And Al is played by the sublime character actor James Gleason. Okay. Well, because of this whole series of these comic mishaps, including this run-in with a drunk who's brilliantly played by Keenan Wynn, Al gets incapacitated. So Joe and Alice decide to finish his route for him. So they spend the whole night <laughs> delivering milk all throughout Manhattan. Because <laughs> that's, that's what happens. That's so nice of them. Because <laughs> they're good people. Well, they end up in the morning. Uh, Al invites them home with him to have breakfast. They meet Al's wife, who's the adorable Emily, who's played by Lucille Gleason, who's James Gleason's real-life wife. Oh, wow. Which made those scenes even more poignant and meaningful, I think. Yeah. Well, over breakfast, Joe and Alice, they're continuing to fall in love, but they really get to see what a real marriage is like mm. with Al and Emily. You know, they're bickering, they're laughing, they're, it's mm-hmm. just a typical marriage, which really shows them that I want that, which is, it's lovely. The, the breakfast scene is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Well, after they leave Al's place, Joe and Alice get separated on a crowded subway. And they're frantically searching the city trying to find each other. But then they realize they don't even know each other's last name. Oh. So it makes it even harder. She goes to the USO and says, I, I'm looking for a soldier. His name is Joe. And they, they look at her like she's crazy. <laughs> he, too, he goes to everywhere you can think of and like, have you seen a girl? She's pretty. Her name's Alice. And the desperation that they have searching for each other. I think really made them realize that they're in love Mm -hmm. because they have to find each other. It's a matter of life and death. Well, instinctively, they both decide to go back to where they met at Penn Station. And they're there. And there's a joyful, tearful reunion. And they pledge their love for each other. And it's so beautiful. And you just love that moment. Well, the war is definitely a cloud that hangs over this movie because Joe has to go back to base camp and eventually will go overseas. And his fate is so unknown. Well, they think about Al and Emily and that marriage and they decide to get married. They're like this. This I know. I feel confident. I want to get married. I love you. 
Well, then comes the bureaucratic red tape of trying to get married in one day because that's all the time Joe's because he's has leaving allowed. the next day. Okay. Yes. So and then there's it's crazy what they go through to try to get married in one day, which is a fun part of the movie to see what they the obstacles, the comic right. hijinks you, you can only imagine, which becomes a ticking clock in the movie, which of course is a theme of, of everything. Sure. That's the dilemma. Are they going to make it? Are they going to get married? What'll happen? What'll happen to Joe when he goes to base camp? What will she do without him? Right. It's just this beautiful, insanely romantic film. But to me, this film is really bittersweet, only in the fact that we all know that Judy Garland and Robert Walker in real life were two very tragic figures. Right. They were both on their separate roads to self-destruction. Yes. And during the making of this film, Garland, she was becoming more and more dependent on barbiturates, and Walker had just learned that his wife, Jennifer Jones from Clooney Brown, was leaving him for David Oselznick. So he was starting to drink and was really starting his downward spiral into alcoholism. But the thing that I love about this film... And it brings me great joy is seeing that just for a brief moment that they get to play these two beautiful, innocent, hopeful souls who fall so passionately in love. And you just wish that Judy and Robert could have had that in their real lives. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well said. Well Mm. said. That's a fantastic movie. The Clock. The Clock. 1945. Speaking of The Clock, I think it's time for our Hollywood pop quiz. Well... (laughs) How's that for a segue? That was a great segue. Look at you slick over there. (laughs) That was nice. So today's pop quiz, of course, keeping in the romance theme, and it's a really simple question. What is the highest grossing romance film of all time? Hmm. So many options. There's so many options. And it's any, you're not limiting it to a time period. Well, you know what? I'll make this interesting. As a part two... What is the highest grossing romance film of the golden era? Which, for our purposes, we'll restrict that to the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So there's two questions. Okay. Highest grossing romance film of all time. Ever. And for the golden era. Oh, Mm. this is great. Okay. We'll be right back with more Valentine's Day films and the answer to the pop quiz after this. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, 
a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. All right, Steve and Ann will be right back, but first, another stop on the Hollywood tour. The Hollywood Canteen was a club opened in Hollywood on October 3rd, 1942. It offered food, dancing, and entertainment for the enlisted men and women who were usually on their way overseas during World War II. Now, it was founded by actors John Garfield and Betty Davis. This after Garfield saw the success of a similar club in New York City that was called the Stage Door Canteen. All you needed to gain admission was a uniform and everything else was free. Wanting to help the war effort and boost the morales of the soldiers going off to war, every major star in Hollywood would come to the canteen to serve food, entertain, and dance with the soldiers. So on any given night, a soldier could come in for a good meal and hear Bing Crosby or Dinah Shore sing, or even Jitterbug with Rita Hayworth or Linda Darnell, or talk about their fears with Spencer Tracy or Joan Leslie. Cool, huh? Now back to Stephen Ann from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. Welcome back. The next film that we're going to talk about is one on my list called Enchantment. Which I had never seen until you recommended it. I get the gold star, right? <laughs> it's 1948. It's directed by Irving Rice, and it's written by John Patrick, who I know from having written The Hasty Heart for the theater. But he also wrote a number of romantic films, including Love is a Many Splendored Thing, oh. which is 1955. He wrote Three Coins in the Fountain, which is 1954. He also wrote The Strange Love of Martha Ivers. Oh, I love that yeah, movie. Yeah, 1946. So... That one, he was nominated for the Academy Award. So Enchantment is adapted by him from the novel Three Tenses by Rumor Godden. This film was new to me as well. So it was advertised back in 1948 as, quote, just about the most wonderful love story ever filmed. <laughs> now, the PR department for Samuel Goldman was working hard, I think. It's not a perfect film. No, but it's not. I still found it enchanting and moving for the Valentine's Day season. The story is about two generations of lovers. There's this burning romance that didn't work out in Victorian times, and then in the current day in the film, it's a new romance between two young people in wartime who are related to the couple from the Victorian age. The film opens in London, and the spirit of the house is telling the tale of what has been going on in this home. And it flashes back to a young orphan relation named Lark, who is being adopted by a family. Now, as we know, adopted girls don't usually fare well in movies. So that is true here, too. Uh, Lark, as a young girl, is played by... Oh. Gigi Perot. I mean, <laughs> she's just, we talked about her in our child yes. actor episode. I had never actually seen her in a film before. And 
to see what she can do. It's no wonder she became the high school acting teacher to a certain princess. Um, her performance is heartfelt and touching, not at all precocious. It's it's just perfection. You're rooting for Lark from the get-go because yes. of what she does for that character. So this adoption upsets the three biological children in the story. Both of the boys fall in love with Lark because who wouldn't? Because who wouldn't? Yeah. Who, as an adult, ends up being played by the effervescent Teresa Wright. And who's not going to fall in love with Teresa Wright? Yeah, who's not going to fall in love with her? Exactly. And the sister, Selena, she is upset because she just hates Lark. I mean, she just <laughs> hates her. The brothers are played by Philip Friend and David Niven, who Lark realizes as time passes that she's in love with, right? The sister, Selena, oh my goodness, she does everything she can to thwart that love between David Niven and Teresa Wright. And she is played <laughs> by none other than Jane Meadows. Far cry from the honeymooners, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely a far cry. And her performance is one of the reasons this film is on my list. It is truly a yes. highlight of the movie. She plays the devil sister. She is evil. <laughs> she is so evil. <laughs> Not wanting this adopted girl to marry her brother. She is subtle and clipped. And you just, you want her to get hit by a carriage. Oh, I, I kept, mean, you just I want to shove her hoping, in the I'm sure we'll get letters about that. But I'm, <laughs> I just wanted the Spanish flu to take her out. <laughs> no, no, she really is awful. But played so wonderfully. So beautifully. The question that I won't answer here is, does Selena, Jane Meadows, manage to keep Teresa Wright and David Niven apart? There's a present-day romance story that I mentioned, and that's between a character named Grizel Dane, an ambulance driver. As I said, it's set during World War II. She is played by Evelyn Keyes, who is perhaps best known as Vivian Lee's kid sister yes. in Gone with the Wind. And her love interest is Officer Pax Masterson, who is played by Farley Granger. So well. They, they were so good together. They were very good together. He, I can never get him out of my mind because of rope, but that's another story. <laughs> Other notables in the cast are the man from Uncle, Leo G. Carroll. Yes. Yeah, he's I wonderful in it. I love him as the, the butler. It's set against the backdrop of the war, and I'm not going to give away much more because the ending of this film oh, is truly moving. Such a great ending. I was so excited to see a film featuring Jane Meadows. She was the big surprise for me in this. I always love me some Teresa Wright. And this film doesn't end like a lot of Hollywood romance films end, which is another reason I really loved it. So go check out Enchantment, which I think you can find on Amazon Prime. Yes, because I watched it last night, oh, so you good. can. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. All right, so my next movie, my final movie, is an incredible movie from 1946 called Till the End of Time. Ah. We had Till We Meet Again. Now we have Till the End of Time. We have a Till theme going and on We here. have time going. Clock, time the clock is clock the other one. <laughs> we planned that. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, this is a movie from RKO Pictures. The director is Edward Dimitrik. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the novel They Dream of Home by Nevin Bush, which, interestingly enough, speaking of Teresa Wright, Nevin Bush was married to Teresa Wright. And, of course, another connection, oh. Teresa Wright as we all know, starred so famously in The Best Years of Our Lives, yes. which came out four months 
after Till the End of Time, and they both deal with similar themes of World War II vets trying to adjust to civilian life after the war. Oh, interesting. Till the End of Time is about the return home of a Marine named Cliff Harper, played by Guy Madison, which was interesting because Guy Madison was sort of a pinup guy. Mm -hmm. He wasn't really known as a very serious dramatic actor, but this role really changed, I think, how Hollywood viewed him because he really has this incredibly difficult dramatic part that that he really excels in. Well, he's trying to matriculate back into civilian life. Mm -hmm. He's been at war. He's supported by his loving parents, played by Tom Tully and Ruth Nelson, more great, great character Mm -hmm. actors that we should all know. (laughs) So he's home. He's sort of lost. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes back to the old pre-war soda shop that he was so fond of. But now it's converted into a bar because things are rougher after the war. Right, right, right. We're more cynical and darker. But there, Cliff meets this beautiful woman named Pat, played by the exquisite Dorothy McGuire. Mm. Just radiant. They're immediately attracted to each other, but both have a lot of emotional baggage. Cliff is clearly suffering from some PTSD from his time at war, and Pat is mourning the death of her husband, who died in the war. Well, Cliff continues to find his way. He begins to drink heavily. He just seems lost. He seems aimless. He seems angry, which really concerns his parents. But he and Pat are still drawn together, And but they're like these two wounded birds. They, they, they yeah. just can't seem to, to get it together and, and really put away the barriers and, and be emotionally available to each other, which is so part of the movie. Mm -hmm. Cliff does connect with a couple of soldiers who are also back from the war. His platoon mate, Bill, is played by the incredible Robert Mitchum. We we know he's a friend (laughs) of ours and we love him. But Bill was wounded at war and he has this steel plate in his head, which causes some uh, physical problems for him. He's working as a cowhand in New Mexico with these big dreams of owning his own ranch one day. Their other pal is Perry, played by Bill Williams. I love Bill Williams. I think he's a very underrated actor. And Perry's come back in worse shape of all. He's lost his legs. Oh, he's wow. angry. He's bitter. He refuses to wear his prosthetic legs and just is giving up on life. So the men try to rally to get Perry's spirits up. Mm-hmm. And I think the three men, I think they are emotionally drawn to each other because nobody knows their stories like they do right. and can relate. And that's It's a love story between Cliff and Pat, but it's also a love story between these three soldiers who have gone through these horrendous traumas. Right. And there's this powerful climactic scene where this other veteran invites Cliff and Bill and Pete to join their Veterans Association. But then when the group's spokesman smugly states that their association has no Catholics, no Jews, and no Negroes, Bill goes ballistic, Whoa. starts a bar brawl. It really strikes a nerve with him. And I remember seeing the movie and wondering, why did that strike such a nerve with him? Maybe he's just a liberal, accepting, loving person. But what I found out through some research, and I find this really interesting, in the original book it's mm-hmm. based on, the three Marines, the Cliff, Perry, and Bill, were either black or Native American in the book. So it would sort of explain the the bar brawl. And they were all white in the film. And, of course, in 1946, they make them all Caucasian, which I think it would have been so much more interesting had one or all of them been of ethnicity because I think it would have added another level of complexity to the struggle that these three soldiers have to fit back into a society that probably they weren't actually 
that they weren't totally accepted into in the first place. Yes. Would have, would have been interesting. Yeah. The absolute heart of the film, of course, is this delicate, complicated love affair between Cliff and Pat, these two wounded souls. You just want them to be together. You want them to get the ghosts out of the way and find each other. You just ache for them, and uh, you watch them as they come closer and closer, but you still wonder, are they going to make it? And yes. that's the, the, the nexus of the film. Yeah. And it's so beautifully done. The story's so well told. The acting is supreme. Definitely a great Valentine's Day movie. Love it. My last film is from 1945, Brief Encounter. Oh. Directed by the great Sir David Lean, based on Noel Coward's play, Still Life, adapted by Mr. Coward, Anthony Havelock Allen, David Lean, and Ronald Name, who you know from... He directed The Poseidon Adventure, of course. (laughs) So if you've never seen this film, and I know you have seen it and and love it. (laughs) Gutting. From the opening image of this train moving down the tracks and this great billow of smoke filling the sky, this movie will capture you. (laughs) You will not be able to look away. It stars Celia Johnson as the character of Laura Jessen. Now, she's a housewife who travels into town every Thursday to do her shopping and go to the cinema. She's waiting at the station to return back to this comfortable life that she has with her husband, Fred, and their children. And as luck would have it, she gets something caught in her eye. So she runs back into the little waiting area, and Dr. Alec Harvey, who's played by Trevor Howard, happens to be there, sees that she has problems with her eye, and helps her get whatever it is out of the eye. As a good doctor would. As a good doctor would. Now, that chance meeting turns into another meeting the following week, which was also by chance, and then it starts a weekly date that the two begin. It's this muted but passionate, ultimately doomed love affair. So doomed. (laughs) And just the setting itself, the the fog, the, the music, the Rachmaninoff score, it explores the thrill of the romance, the pain of the romance, there's, there's tenderness, and there's a wonderful device that they use in the film for the whole telling of the story. The character of Laura comes home after having met with him, and you hear in voiceover her telling her husband what happened. He's sitting across from her working a crossword puzzle, and completely in voiceover, she tells him and us this story. <laughs> and it is some of the most beautiful acting that you will ever see. Yes. Celia Johnson was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance. What she does with a breath, with an eyelid, what she is able to convey, it's film acting at its finest, I think. absolutely. David Lean was also nominated for Best Director, and it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was actually, I didn't realize this, Trevor Howard's first leading role. He had done a couple of other films, very small parts. Oh, wow. The film was shot during the final days of World War II. One of the things I learned is that Celia Johnson was not interested in doing the movie. She really didn't care for film acting, but she read the script and thought, I just have to do this. The film also features, again, 
our cherry on top of the cake character actors, Stanley Holloway, who was Liza Doolittle's father in My Fair Lady. (laughs) He has a flirtation with Joyce Carey, who um, is the woman that runs the refreshment stand. He's the station master. And so there's kind of a parallel story of how he's wooing her. And that's a wonderful storyline as well. And then there's this busybody friend. I believe she only has one scene. Yes. <laughs> played by Everly Gregg. And she is just sublime. Delicious. I mean, yeah, delicious. she's really delicious. Yeah. Cyril Raymond plays the husband to Celia Johnson's character. Celia Johnson actually went into kind of a semi retirement uh, once she had children. And she really didn't make that many more films after this, which is so what a, yes. unfortunate. What a shame. Yeah, she is so striking. You can't take your eyes off her. I don't want to give away too much if you haven't seen it, but I dare you to watch this film and not burst into tears at the final (laughs) moment between... Two characters that you might be surprised of who they are. And I I won't even say that. I think this film is probably on my top 10 of all time films, whether it's a romantic drama or Can totally see that. Can totally see that. It's so such about the reawakening of love. To me, that's the the biggest thing I took away from it. It's like love can die, but it it can sprout again. Yes, yes. Amen to that. I think it's time for the answer to our Hollywood pop quiz, Steve. Well, in our love theme of Valentine's Day, the question was, what's the highest grossing romance film of all time? Drum roll, please. Okay. Care to take a a guess? Titanic? Ding, 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 ding. It is Titanic from 1997. All right. Okay. Highest grossing. And then what is the highest grossing romance film from the golden era? Okay. I don't know. Gone with the Wind. Of course. (laughs) Of course it was Gone with the Wind. Of course. 1939. Wow. Well, happy Valentine's Day, Steve. Well, happy Valentine's Day. I hope you guys will check out some of these movies. They're really perfect for this holiday. And we also hope that you will check us out on social media and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. The handle is at From Beneath the Hollywood sign. And we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info from beneath the Hollywood sign dot com. That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schnell. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schneebly and Toth. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. That's a wrap. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.